Welcome to the NeuroFarm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Doctor of Pharmacy. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Chris Tony, Doctor of Pharmacy. There's over 4 million podcasts in the United States, but we're glad you're choosing to listen to this one. And we hope to give you some information and education around alternative mental health therapies on this evening. Hope everyone is having a very good Labor Day holiday. It's the day before Labor Day, Labor Day Eve, as we record this. Um, one bit of current events news to come out was there was an article in JAMA that talked about single dose psilocybin for major depression, the results of a phase two trial. This was published on the 31st of August, just a couple of days ago. And it found that patients receiving a 25 milligram dose of synthetic psilocybin um, had benefits over patients receiving a active placebo of 100 milligrams of niacin. Uh, psilocybin treatment was associated with clinically significant sustained reduction in depression symptoms and functional disability without serious adverse events. Really just adding on to the um, evidence around psilocybin showing its benefit for treatment of major depression disorder. So we talked about before the FDA granted a breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin around this indication, recognizing there's a large unmet need of people dealing with major depression who don't see benefit from current pharmacotherapies. So this, again, is a phase two trial. So it's not a phase three, meaning that um, this is associated sort of just with people that had the disease and we're trying this. Uh, we'll see furthermore if a phase three trial is conducted and what the results will be before potentially gets submitted to the FDA for this particular company's version of synthetic psilocybin. We do see a lot of synthetic psilocybin products that are in the pipeline and potentially will be on the market in the future. Um, and that really helps provide hope for people dealing with major depression. Uh, we just want to highlight these sort of trials and the evidence behind them and try to provide the hope and inspiration for people who aren't benefiting from current therapies and also really explain all the safety and efficacy data. As we see it as pharmacists, so people, providers, and clinicians and patients are well-informed to make decisions. So Chris, I'm uh, going to turn over to talk about microdosing. Microdosing really is a big field of interest of anyone who spent time on the internet and Reddit or any other chat forums. We see many patients using microdosing with psilocybin in particular and for many different reasons and indications. So this is a really broad topic, but we're gonna highlight some of the science so far uh, as we've been able to see it. And for that, I'll turn it over to Chris to take it away. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna discuss what microdosing is. Um, so there's not a single clearly recognized definition of microdosing for any psychedelic drug. Um, and this comp complicates our attempts to perform consistent research. Um, one definition is that approximately one-fifth to one-twentieth of a recreational dose um, would be a microdose. And from anecdotal experience, this is accurate as a medium-strength dose of psilocybin is two to three grams of dried mushrooms, and a microdose is typically around 0 0.3 grams. One obstacle is that the potency of mushrooms can vary greatly as they are not regulated outside of clinical trials. 
So this isn't an exact science. Uh, likewise, LSD, it's uh, an invisible, tasteless, odorless substance that usually comes in either liquid form or embedded into a piece of paper to be slipped under the tongue. Given its current illegality and lack of regulation, there is no good way to know what dosage you are taking unless you have an extraordinarily reliable supplier. LSD is extremely powerful and long-acting, and you don't want to take more of it than intended. Further, psychedelics such as psilocybin and LSD can produce physiological tolerance, which might suggest that even if microdosing does help, there could be diminishing returns if one stays at the same dosage. Um, I want to highlight um, three different microdosing protocols. Uh, one is from Dr. James Fadiman, and he recommends uh, taking a dose, a microdose of psilocybin um, every fourth to fifth day. Um, so basically, you know, after four days, um, then you would take another dose, then four days later, take another dose. Um, Paul Stamets has a protocol where uh, you microdose every four to five days, and then you take two to three days off. Um, he also recommends combining with niacin and lion's mane mushroom. And the Microdosing Institute uh, recommends microdosing every other day. And the next thing I'm going to discuss is the safety of microdosing. So we don't know much about safety as we might have learned it, uh, not for, if it weren't for the war on drugs, uh, which stopped much of the research into psychedelics starting in the late 1960s. Uh, this research has been renewed over the last five to 10 years, and many medical centers are conducting research on psychedelics currently. Uh, psilocybin is generally thought to be safe in low dosages and has been used for centuries by indigenous peoples. However, if one takes too large a dose, it can result in a terrifying, even traumatic experience. And also keep in mind that we discussed in an earlier podcast that um, microdosing may still contribute to heart valve issues. Um, so that's something that you know we'll need to continue to look at when studies are performed with psilocybin. Um, you know, and psilocybin, it's a compound that's produced by almost 200 species of mushroom. And the mushrooms must come from a trusted source. Uh, it's very easy to poison yourself with the wrong type of mushroom, as there are many types of mushrooms in nature that can look quite similar to each other. But some are poisonous and can harm your liver, causing severe illness or even death. I would like to talk about discussing whether... Uh, psychedelics would be safer if they're legalized and I think you know that's an important thing to keep in mind is um, you know, when we're doing research we'll start to see more safety data coming out uh, with different doses different patients um, so it's anticipated by experts in the field that some psychedelics uh, may become fully legalized for medical usage under supervision within the next few years, specifically psilocybin and with MDMA. Some policymakers and public health experts believe that the safety of these psychedelics would be enhanced if they were decriminalized and if their cultivation and production were monitored and regulated. At least one state, Oregon, and many cities around the country have decriminalized psychedelics at the local level. Some advocates of decriminalization are looking 
to a safer product and wider access that could include not having to see a medical professional to get a prescription or be under medical supervision when using psychedelics. Skeptics are worried that uncontrolled access to these drugs might affect patients with mental illness or might even participate mental, sorry, precipitate mental illness, such as psychosis and people that are vulnerable. It's important to mention that the use of all psychedelic drugs should be undertaken with utmost caution. If they should be used at all in patients with major health illnesses, uh, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. For safety reasons, these patients are typically excluded from the studies involving psychedelic drugs. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the science behind microdosing of psychedelics. There is no definitive evidence yet that microdosing with psychedelics is either effective or safe. Um, does microdosing work? Well, in short, the jury is still out. Um, some studies are indicating that it's a very real and significant benefit um, with microdosing, whereas others you know, are less convincing and show little to no benefit. One recent study used in naturalistic observational design to study 953 psilocybin microdosers um, compared with 180 non-dosing participants for 30 days and found a small to medium-sized improvement in mood and mental health that were generally consistent across gender, age, and presence of mental health concerns. Um, the study and others like it appear to confirm uh, many anecdotal reports of people who swear by the benefits they have experienced from microdosing. Other studies on microdosing are far and less are far less impressive. Uh, in one example, the researchers conducted a randomized controlled study which represents the strongest type of evidence because it weeds out the placebo effect. Uh, the researchers took 34 patients and randomized half of them to receive psilocybin and the other half to receive placebo. While there were some intriguing subjective effects such as people feeling happier and more creative um, and even some changes in brain waves uh, recorded on an EEG machine, um, that looks at the electrical um, conductivity in the brain. They concluded that low-dose psilocybin mushrooms uh, did not show objective evidence of improvements in creativity, well-being, and cognitive function. Um, studies such as this one support the hypothesis uh, that the effect people receive from psychedelics at these sub-perceptual doses is most likely um, an expectancy effect and that one needs to consume a higher dosage to receive a therapeutic benefit. So to microdose or not to microdose. So while any medical or lifestyle decision is an individual's choice, I would highly recommend that you speak with your doctor to explore your decision to take psychedelics and see if there are any medical reasons why you should be cautious or avoid these drugs. It is critical to pay attention to the legality and the quality of your product. You likely can't afford to get into legal jeopardy and certainly can't afford to poison yourself. Finally, uh, it's also important to understand that there isn't yet definitive proof that microdosing is at all helpful or even that it is safe in the long term. With these points in mind, it is fair to say that psychedelic drugs are becoming better understood and are undergoing a resurgence of research and a more widely accepted use. Um, Colby, would you like to um, tell us about drug interactions with psychedelics? 
Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, I, I agree highlighting the legal aspect. It is federal legal, as I remind people, even if at the state or local or county level, it is being decriminalized or legalized even in some cases. Uh, it does not mean that federal laws do not still apply. So there was a case, uh, I think about a year ago, I read about a mom in Indiana who was growing mushrooms for her own consumption for microdosing and somehow got feds got tipped off and the DEA raided and, you know, arrested her basically and potentially facing criminal charges. And I haven't followed up with this case, but it's just a reminder that, you know, it's maybe not priority number one for the DEA right now, uh, but it is a risk you're assuming to use these substances as well as the health implications. I think the heart valve risk is perhaps the most scariest potential long-term risk with microdosing that we still don't quite know um, the odds of such an event happening. But any drug that interferes with the serotonin 2B receptor, the FDA has said it's a risk uh, to use that product. Um, and clinical trials, they recommend not including patients with any history of valveopathy of the heart or pulmonary hypertension in clinical trials for psychedelics for that reason. So again, even at lower doses long-term, we just, we just don't know enough to say that that's not a risk that could occur. And we'll find out more as more people start using these products and have more data collected. Anyways, drug, drug interactions. I want to highlight with psychedelic substances. Um, serotonin syndrome is probably the thing that is talked about most with psychedelics. If you perform a Google search or go on Reddit or any kind of forum, this is usually what is talked about. And any medication that increases serotonin levels could put someone at risk of serotonin syndrome. Um, if people don't know what serotonin syndrome is, it's characterized by hyper sweating um, or hyperthermia, hyperreflexia, or seizure-like activity and can eventually lead to coma and death if not treated. So these are extremely rare events uh, and they're particularly pretty rare with psychedelics as I'll, as I'll get to more in a minute, but it is something that you need to be aware of and probably have found on a Google search. Um, the other type of interaction we talk about with psychedelics is with antidepressants. So why do we talk about antidepressants so much? About 20% of Americans use antidepressants SSRIs are the most commonly used antidepressant, which are your ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. About 18% of Americans use an SSRI or prescribed an SSRI. Uh, these medications work by increasing the availability of serotonin in the synaptic cleft. So basically it means that there's more serotonin that is available to pass between neuron to neuron uh, it increases the amount of time serotonin is in that space between the neurons so that more of it acts on the receptor on the um, receiving neuron and generates an effect to produce more serotonin and make you feel good. Serotonin is kind of the, the happiness hormone as it's been hypothesized. So only about 50%, however, of patients experience a clinically significant response to SSRIs. This according to the STAR-D trial, which is a real-world data analysis of antidepressant therapy. So again, this is why a lot of people are turning to alternative therapies for depression, why we're even talking about you know, psilocybin and these other drugs, because SSRIs uh, just don't work for everybody. And beyond some people just wanting like a more natural solution for depression, not relying on big pharma. 
SSRIs take about four to six weeks to be effective for therapy for depression, even though they do start increasing serotonin right away. So there's never been a clear answer to explain why there's this delay in the time it takes for SSRIs to be effective. There's some hypotheses there, but there's no real clear answer to that question. It's a common counseling point to say it takes four to six weeks to see a benefit, uh, but we don't quite know why. So SSRIs and psychedelics, there are a lot of people who use both of these medications together. Um, a lot of what the data tells us, though, is that they do interact with each other. So long-term use of psychedelics can decrease the body's production of the serotonin 2A receptor. Serotonin 2A is where LSD and psilocybin and DMT bind um, to those particular receptor subtypes. So with repeated stimulation of that receptor, you might have a down regulation of uh, 5-HT2A. There also could be down regulation of the serotonin receptors for SSRIs. So people that use SSRIs long-term um, don't have as much receptors available for psilocybin and LSD to bind to. And that is part of explaining why there's a lesser response to psychedelic therapy for people that are on SSRIs um, over time. But most of the surveys showing the reduced response come from patient reported data. So patients that have used LSD or psilocybin and have also been on antidepressant for a number of weeks, um, there's been some surveys and studies where people reported that after they started antidepressants, and but they tried LSD before they had antidepressants, they didn't have the same effect from LSD as they had before. I reported uh, one of these studies uh, back on our episode on LSD. If you go back, um, we have episode three of the podcast. We talked about that data analysis of that trial. So people find that it's anywhere from about 50% less effect from LSD or psilocybin when they're on an SSRI or SNRI or when these medications interferes with serotonin, interferes with the ability of the drugs to bind the receptor. Now, that being said, Compass Health recently in 2021 released results from the COMP360 trial that actually showed comparable outcomes in patients treated with 25 milligrams of psilocybin plus an SSRI compared to those treated with 25 milligram psilocybin alone. Uh, this was a small study. It had, I believe, 17 patients. So it definitely goes against existing literature. Um, and it's really small, but... Maybe there's more we don't know. There's some unanswered questions here that people could use psychedelics with SSRIs and have the same response. Uh, I think that the overall data suggests that that's not the case. But again, with this outlier trial, uh, maybe there'll be more to come on this. The other risk, as I mentioned earlier, is serotonin syndrome. So you can Google serotonin syndrome risk with psilocybin and LSD, and it will mentioned that, you know, the best answer is that the risk exists and that it's best to take steps to minimize that risk by minimizing your exposure to other medications to increase serotonin, which I'll talk about that. And I'm going to put a chart in the reference section for people to refer to because sometimes easier visually to explain these things versus talking about it. But regarding serotonin syndrome risk, there were two psychiatric pharmacists who recently looked at the risk of serotonin syndrome with psychedelics. 
and determined the risk with LSD and psilocybin is very low. They said there's almost no case reports of people experiencing serotonin syndrome with the use of LSD or psilocybin. So that's a that's a good answer we can have some confidence with. Um, but there's a higher risk they reported with MDMA, ayahuasca, and 5-MeO-DMT or the toad. Um, and as well as one class of medication that can really increase the risk of serotonin syndrome is monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOIs. Uh, thankfully, those medications are not used much anymore in clinical practice, but it's just something to be aware of. There is no risk as well with ketamine. Ketamine doesn't impact serotonin, so it should not cause serotonin syndrome. And uh, bupropione is one antidepressant which doesn't have much of an effect at all on serotonin levels. It actually impacts dopamine and norepinephrine, which are other neurotransmitters. But it is a strong CYP2D6 inhibitor. CYP2D6 is an enzyme that breaks down many different medications, particularly antidepressants. So that is a consideration with bupropione and use of psychedelics. But serotonin syndrome, again, the, the highest risk of that occurring appears to be with ayahuasca, especially people who combine ayahuasca with 5-MeO-DMT. Both of those medications are DMT derivatives and have a strong effect on serotonin and really are not recommended to be used together. There's actually been case reports of death by people combining those. So please do not combine those medications. Regarding other interactions with medications and, and what the best practice would be, you have drugs that increase serotonin and may dampen psychedelic response. So this includes SSRIs, SNRIs, and tricyclic antidepressants such as amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and clomipramine, as well as atypical antipsychotics. There's a whole bunch of these, um, risperidone, olanzapine, aripiprazole, ziprazidone, just a name a few of the medications in this class. Those medications also primarily act on the serotonin 2A receptor where psychedelics bind. So some of these are referred to as trip killers, um, but they do seem to have a particular impact in dampening the response to psychedelics. And then you have other medications uh, such as mirtazapine and buspirone that increase serotonin levels in other ways uh, that can also impact the response to psychedelics, as well as potentially increase the risk of serotonin syndrome. So those medications kind of fit in one category that should be used with caution with psychedelics and as well knowing that maybe you're going to have to use a higher dose of psychedelics to achieve the same effect that you normally would because they can over time dampen the number of receptors present and reduce the psychedelic response. There's other medications that increase serotonin in other ways and could increase the risk of serotonin syndrome, but as far as we know, don't necessarily block the response to psychedelics. And these include muscle relaxers like flexoril, methocarbamol, and tizanidine, amphetamines such as Adderall and Vyvanse and Concerta, ergoalkaloids, bromocryptine, um, methyl ergonavine, tramadol. Tramadol is actually an agent that is used for pain and considered an opioid, but it does impact serotonin levels. It can increase serotonin. Methadone, another one, an opioid derivative that increases serotonin. Uh, triptan, such as sumatriptan and zolmatriptan and rizotriptan, benzodiazepines, and supplements, St. John's wort and L-tryptophan. Cannabis, I put a kind of a question mark next to this. There is some literature 
that reports serotonin syndrome-like activity with people consuming high amounts of THC. But there's uh, some thought that the serotonin-like symptoms could actually be signs of THC toxicity. There's some overlap in how those conditions present. So don't know for sure that cannabis causes serotonin syndrome. So I put kind of a question mark here, but potentially could interact with psychedelics. And that's good to know because some people out there might consume both of those substances at the same time. Um, good know the information. The only two class of agents that really are definitely drugs that should be avoided with um, psychedelics are MAOIs, such as phenylzine, risagiline, and silagiline. Again, these drugs were commonly used for depression in the 1950s and 60s and really have fallen out of favor. But some of them are still used for Parkinson's disease or perhaps maybe refractory depression. Those drugs should really be avoided with psychedelics because they can greatly amplify uh, serotonin expression by reducing metabolism. Lithium is the other class of medication, other type of medication, I say it's not class, a uh, single drug that potentially should be avoided with psychedelics because there is evidence that it could potentiate mania in people using psychedelics. Um, Again, usually people with bipolar one or mania should avoid use of psychedelics anyway. We've talked about that in past episodes, but I would consider lithium a contraindication with any of these agents. A couple a more specific psychedelics that have um, drug interactions are, one is MDMA. So MDMA is a stimulant. As we talked about, it's a derivative of methamphetamine actually. So other stimulants like Adderall really should be avoided with MDMA that could increase the risk of hypertension, high blood pressure, um, should not, you know, an over, basically overexcitement of the neurons really should not use any sort of stimulant with MDMA, which is already a stimulant, pretty potent one itself. And alcohol is known to interact with MDMA, best to avoid that. I would say it's probably best to avoid alcohol with any of these agents, ideally, uh, but the highest risk potentially with MDMA and maybe ketamine, ketamine being a sedative. And then ayahuasca. I, I touched on ayahuasca briefly, um, or DMT. I said to avoid it with 5-MeO DMT. Uh, but the other interaction that occurs with ayahuasca is one of the inactive ingredients is a harmine. Harmines are potent inhibitors of the CYP1A2 enzyme. So any drug that, inter that is metabolized by CYP1A2 should be avoided with ayahuasca. Uh, this includes tobacco or nicotine products, caffeine, estrogen, ropinerol, and amitriptyline. All those should be avoided with uh, the use of ayahuasca because the harmines in ayahuasca increase the expression of these drugs by lowering their metabolism. So you can have some pretty significant side effects. You know, nicotine is a potent stimulant and you can risk uh, increased exposure to nicotine, higher blood pressure, nausea, vomiting, stuff that we really wouldn't want to have occur. The other thing to consider with these psychedelics is they are generally metabolized by CYP2D6. Other than ayahuasca, I should say CYP2D6 is the most common uh, metabolism pathway. So any drug that interacts with CYP2D6 could increase the expression of psychedelics themselves. And this includes drugs such as fluoxetine, paroxetine, duloxetine, bupropion, um, merbetric, which is a drug for um, urinary retention. 
And then a couple supplements I listed here, kava and echinacea. You got to remember that supplements also have interactions with pharmaceuticals. Uh, it can be sometimes hard to find information on supplements, but they are metabolized by normal pathways, so they can cause interactions when mixed with other drugs too. Uh, with these CYP2D6 inhibitors, you know, it's best to try to minimize exposure to psychedelics when you're on one of these medications. So obviously we talked about antidepressants can take some time to taper. So just quitting them cold turkey so you can try psilocybin or going to retreat maybe isn't the best idea. It'd be best to talk to a pharmacist or provider or, you know, consult with one of us about tapering strategies before you go to retreat or plan to use uh one of these agents. So you don't just quit cold Turkey because that can cause significant side effects as well of just stopping your SSRI or SNRI. The highest risk of drug interactions, you know, besides ayahuasca is really the MDMA. So those two agents, I want, just want to highlight DMT or ayahuasca and MDMA have the highest risk of drug interactions, lower risk with psilocybin and LSD, although it's still something to keep in mind and again, work with someone like us, a medical professional to minimize the risk of interactions. There's also this field of pharmacogenomics. So this is a field that explains that any variability in drug response is due to genetic variations in the enzymes that metabolize uh, drugs located in the liver. Again, these CYP enzymes. So there's still a lot we don't know about pharmacogenomics. There's some guidelines coming out. Um, by CPIC is one of the agencies that puts out guidelines about dosing of specific agents uh, in patients that are considered poor metabolizers or rapid metabolizers. But obviously, <laughs> there's no real data yet on psychedelics. Being this is a really new science, uh, we don't know, you know, how you should adjust your dose if you're a poor or rapid metabolizer. But with other drugs, we can sometimes refer these guidelines and direct people to adjust dosing if they've been screened and found that they are a poor metabolizer or rapid metabolizer. A lot of these tests aren't be performing uh, in clinics. You know, doctors don't order them, which is kind of a problem, but they are out there. There are several companies that perform tests like this. Uh, Nutrigenomics is one I've partnered with uh, in the past, or GeneSight is another popular company, Tempest Labs. So they can screen to see if you're a poor or rapid metabolizer in CYP2D6 or other enzymes, um, and then refer to the proper recommendations to figure out how you should adjust therapy or which drug should be avoided if you're not a good candidate for a drug based on which enzyme metabolizes it. And with CYP2D6 in particular, up to 10% of Caucasians and up to 20% of African Americans or those with African descent may be poor CYP2D6 metabolizers. So that's why we talk about that one a lot. Uh, in addition to the fact that a lot of mental health drugs are metabolized by CYP2D6. I believe at least 25% of mental health drugs are metabolized by CYP2D6. So I'll post the table, uh, perhaps provide a more clear response to drug interactions, but there are numerous drug interactions with these compounds. But again, um, highest risk MDMA and ayahuasca. And I would also want to mention about candy flipping. This is something that's has been talked about in clinical trials, and we could do a shorter podcast on this maybe in the future, but candy flipping is the act of combining MDMA and LSD. And this is potentially dangerous practice because uh, MDMA can inhibit LSD metabolism. 
um, and lead to super therapeutic levels. So it is very dangerous to combine those together. I'll also list a caution, definitely not best practice in addition to avoiding ayahuasca and 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, I don't know why it's being called candy flipping, but <laughs> that's a popular terminology you might read about the internet out there. MDMA, of course, may also be an agent that inhibits its own metabolism, which is a separate topic. You know, tolerance seems to develop pretty rapidly with MDMA uh, due to the way it works in releasing serotonin and norepinephrine as opposed to the other psychedelics, which bind to the receptor, but they don't necessarily directly lead to increased release of serotonin from uh, the brain as MDMA does. So that one really poses its own sort of higher risk of interactions and tolerance and addiction. MDMA microdosing is, is something that's probably, again, because the risk of tolerance and addiction develops rapidly with MDMA, it does have a higher risk of addiction compared to LSD or psilocybin. That's a drug that microdosing is probably not going to be recommended for. You know, we talked about risks with LSD or psilocybin, but many people are microdosing those drugs. And there's a lot of reasons for microdosing, you know, anti-inflammatory response seems to occur at a lower dose um, that, than that, which contributes to psychotic effect or psychedelic effects. So a lot of people take it for like general immune health or anti-inflammatory health, or even some evidence that microdosing can help for gut health or chronic pain. So we're talking about microdosing that we're generally referring to LSD or in particular psilocybin and not MDMA, that's when I would not recommend microdosing just because of the way it works and the higher risk of tolerance and maybe potential for neurotoxicity, although that hasn't been proven. Um, there was a study showed neurotoxicity that was retracted, but it is definitely possible there's a withdrawal effect with MDMA uh, more than you see with the other drugs, which, which even do, they have their own withdrawal effects as well. But just want to mention that. <laughs> All right, I will put references and then the um, tables, which may be very helpful. Sometimes easier to visually see things and is to explain them. And uh, thank you for tuning in this evening. As always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Any content presented is to share knowledge, and we do not advocate for or against the use of psychedelic drugs, being that they are federally legal. Thank you. Any other questions, you can send us an email at uh, cburns at neuralfarm.net or leave a comment on the post. And thank you very much for listening. Ah, hold on. Sorry. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. I believe this closes our several week discussion on psilocybin for now. And we want to turn our attention next time to talking about ketamine. So tune in next time. We'll talk about pharmacology of ketamine how ketamine works, talk about side effects. This is a just a really interesting drug being that it's, you know, in the past been used for anesthesia and pain, and this indication for depression is really new. But ketamine is already popping up in clinics everywhere now across the country, um, being that it is not Schedule 1. It's actually a Schedule 3 drug, so it's a little bit easier to administer and there's less red tape. But ketamine is providing another hope for people with treatment-resistant depression, and we want to highlight that in future episodes. But any other questions about psilocybin, please feel free to reach out. Um, we will hopefully be getting someone that works at a psilocybin clinic in Oregon on the podcast to talk 
about uh, how this is being administered in a clinical setting. We reached out to a group uh, in Bend, Oregon that we hope to hear back from. Um, but thank you very much for listening to this series, and we hope you continue listening.